Come on, let's go. By shortwave broadcast, direct from important overseas capitals, we are about to broadcast this moment in our history. Hello and welcome to the History Workshop Podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. Today we return to family history, to the second of two podcasts that grow out of a series of workshops on family history held in the spring of 2021. The first episode explored difficult stories and ethical dilemmas that doing family history can generate. The second explores the intersection between histories of family and histories of migration. And to introduce it, I'll hand over to the series convener, Julia Late. Hello, and welcome to the second of two Family History Workshop podcasts, which feature some of the speakers from the workshops, which were held online in the spring of 2021. I'm Julia Late, a historian based at Birkbeck University of London, and I put these workshops together in order to provide a forum where academic historians like me, who use family history methodologies, and family historians who work outside of academia, could come together to think through key issues and themes in what has become one of the most exciting areas of history making. This podcast is about moving stories and looks at this theme in two related ways. How can we tell moving stories of family migration and what are the challenges? And how might we write and communicate such stories? What do we do with the stories that move us? And what is the potential for family history to move our conversations to new places. First, we'll hear from Ruth Beecher, reflecting on a multi-generational oral history project which drew out themes of Irish women's migration out of Ireland and the ways these experiences were shaped by gender, class, place, age, and generation, as well as dreams, fears, and aspirations. These are both moving and staying stories that reveal the different meanings of migration within families. So I wanted to start uh, with a sentence from Donal Ryan's 2020 novel, Strange Flowers. And he says, Ma left no note behind, just made her bed and packed her few things into her mother's old leather valise and went through the door and across the yard without a sound. And she walked down the lane to the village and she took the early bus to Nina and the train to Dublin. And now here is B, and B is talking about uh, leaving Ireland in the 1950s. My friend said, I'm going to leave home. I said, I'll leave with you. And I nicked 10 pounds out of daddy's drawer upstairs and I'm waiting for her. And she said, oh, I'm not going. Well, I had done the deed, you know. I had literally got on the train, the late afternoon train and got into Dublin and knew a fellow in Dublin. And he put me on the train that night to Dunleary to catch the ferry to England. There was something in me that just wanted to know what life was like someplace else. And lastly, B's sister Dee. She's 21 years younger and she's speaking of her decision to leave in the 1970s. I said to daddy, I'm going to England. I'm going to be a nurse. He turned around and said to me, no, you're not. You're the youngest. You're going to stay home and you're going to look after your mother and father until we die and I'll get you a job in the bank. And I looked him in the eye and I thought to myself, no friggin' way, I am out of here. So I opened my talk with talk of leaving Ireland. 
the ever repeating cycle of our country's history since the at least the 1840s is about leaving Ireland. Everyone in Ireland leaves or stays behind. And I was unsure whether that was what I would start with today because it is a trope, it's a motif, it's predictability perhaps leading people to switch off. But it is at the centre of so many Irish women's stories. Alessandro Portelli says that oral histories tell us less about events than about their meaning. So they tell us not just what people did, but what they wanted to do, what they believed they were doing and what they now think they did. And if the event I open with is the act of leaving, Ryan tells us nothing about its meaning for Moll at the opening of his latest novel. So Moll leaves and nobody knows why or where she goes. She leaves her village in the 1970s. Although Ryan's narrator says the world was changing fast with people living together and having children before they were married at all and married people roaring for divorces and birth control, whatever the hell that was. But what we know from B and her sister D's oral histories is that between the 1950s when B left and the 1970s when D got on the bus to Dublin, they felt that not a lot had changed in their little town in County Mayo. Now, the meaning of leaving for B is not explicit in what she says above. She's moving towards something, something in me that just wants to know what life was like someplace else. Her younger sister, Dee, says she is moving away from the prospect of acting as a carer for her parents into their old age. But hearing their full interviews, we discover B was moving away from something too. She says she was the girl in the family who helped to raise the younger siblings because Mammy was always so tired because she was having so many babies. She'd send me out to school in the morning and then I'd go round the back of the house and come back when daddy was gone. And Dee was not just moving away from a life of looking after her aging parents, but away from what she called the repression, the moral judgment, the church, and the way people judged you. She was also gravitating towards something, a career that was not available to her in Ireland at the time. Listening to their full interviews in the archive, you'll find a greater complexity of meaning than I can convey in a short time today. How does using oral histories within families and across generations help us to understand individual sense of selfhood, their rationale for action, the extent of the choices available to them across time and space, and the extent of their autonomy? And in what ways can we expand outward from individual to family, to community, to region, to country, and then to the diaspora? My brief talk is about a project I established a few years ago called Unagonaguna. I'm a historian and along with a clinical psychologist, a social worker and a cultural theorist, we decided we wanted to explore the experiences of women with a strong connection to Ireland, born in each decade of the 20th century. How did they understand, adhere to and or resist the ideologies of, of their times in the formative years between their teens and their 20s? Our politic is feminist, and we want to be part of creating a greater representation of women's experiences in a society with deeply patriarchal foundations. But I guess beyond that, we were particularly interested in the idea of female family members from different generations interviewing each other. And we intended to record only multi-generational interviews within families, grandmothers, mothers, daughters, aunts, cousins, were the lived experiences of women born, for example, in the 1930s in Ireland, so very different from those born in the 1980s, would stereotypes be amplified or undermined? 
naturally the project evolved in a more complicated way. So for some of the women uh, interviewed to date, their mothers had passed away. Some of the women did not want their mothers or older relatives to be asked for an interview. There was an element of gatekeeping. But five interviews recorded to date involve three generations of two families. Unibonaguna interviewers are volunteers. Uh, they're trained, but we operate without a topic guide because as Sue Bradley neatly put it in a recent article, that offers freedom to explore unexpected avenues and opportunities for an interviewer and a narrator to collaborate in mapping the terrain. But as we do focus on a particularly formative stage of women's lives around those ages of 15 to 25, the themes that arise are often similar. They're most often social, emotional, political, usually with a small p. So family dynamics, education, social lives, religion, friendships, sex and sexuality, style, culture, birth control, pregnancy, careers, and of course, emigration. B&D's interviews broadly follow along these lines. Both talk about the iron grip of the Catholic Church on a macro and a micro level and about class in their small Mayo town. Both talk about gender roles, the men who rule the roost and the suffocating secrecy and hypocrisy in relation to sexuality and reproduction that seem to loosen its grip only slightly between the 1950s and the 1970s. But what is special about intrafamilial interviews, I think, is that they accentuate issues of memory and subjectivity. So in these interviews, B&D's personalities, their places in the family and their life experiences before and after they left Ireland accentuate the subjectivity of all histories, whether from written or oral sources, that people conceptualize and describe the same family circumstances and events in often radically different ways. So while both B and D describe their mother as worn out and exhausted, B's interview conveys this as just the way it was back then. D, as the youngest child, had a different interest in and understanding of the mechanics of why it was that way back then. Her mother spoke to her about it directly, telling her she chose to see a visiting priest who did not know her to get help. She said to him, I didn't want to have sex with my husband anymore because I don't want any more children. I'm so exhausted. I'm so tired. I'm worn out. And he said to her, go home and be a wife to your husband. And she told Dee that night she conceived her sixth child. And Dee said, and on it went. And she had her last pregnancy at 48. She had a miscarriage at six months. She had me at 42. So where B would repeat often that life was hard and refer to the rule of men and priests, D is more specific in criticizing the structural role of the priests. Basically, she said, they wanted women to be procreators and pop out as many Catholics as they could to keep the numbers up. She is also less deferential about the behavior of individual clergy. The hypocrisy of many of those priests, a couple of whom I knew were going out with women in the town at the time. The interviews were in 2018, when the Catholic Church had been toppled from its pedestal with many examples of abuse. But Billy still spoke of her love for the church. I always felt there was a hand over my head all my life. Of course, there are advantages and disadvantages in intrafamilial interviewing. You are usually interviewing someone you know well and have a close relationship with. They may not tell you things for fear of hurting your feelings. You hear new information and have to manage your emotional responses. You notice things that are left out, which you may not twig if the person is a stranger. You perceive changes over time in the way that a person tells you a story. 
Some people become more embittered towards a person or an experience, others soften. Sometimes the so-called facts change altogether, or as Dee said to her older sister, your memories are rose-tinted. Ruth's work here reminds us of the productive subjectivities in the stories that move us, and the way that stories move. But as Chandan Mahal considers next, how might we work with the many stories of family and of migration that were imperfectly recorded and preserved in the shadow of colonialism, by frequent and fraught migration, and by the present-day Western-focused genealogy resources and colonial archives? How, she asks, might we work with communities to reconstruct these histories? I've been working with people of Punjabi descent of different generations to explore family history and place. So this research has been a collaboration with Queen Mary and the Royal Geographical Society to explore how people of Punjabi descent of different generations engage with different sources to do family history and how place and geography plays a significant factor. We know finding relevant sources for many descendants of migrant communities can be very challenging where those ancestral records will not be accessible in Britain and for Punjabis, often those records were not systematically recorded in their countries of birth, particularly pre-partition and after 1947, where millions of people were displaced and had to move, those records have become further fragmented. Therefore, the process of recovering these histories is very reliant on key people in the family and community who hold this knowledge and then how those stories of family are passed down through generations. So there are four strands to this research and there were various methods used to examine the experience of British Punjabis. But just to give a bit of context, well, one of the first elements was exploring how British Punjabis locate um, themselves and their family history within the public archive, particularly in colonial records that many of the institutions in Britain hold. And this was mainly used in the Royal Geographical Society collections, which I'll talk about in a bit more detail. And then secondly, it examines family archives and material culture associated with family history, exploring the types of objects, heirlooms and photographs that people keep in their own family records. And these were also, these are also becoming more important as part of a growing number of community created archives, which are being produced, drawing on people's personal family records and oral histories, which are contributing to physical and digital archive projects. And then um, thirdly, family history practices for the Punjabi diaspora. This, this was part of understanding the sort of cultural traditions and the way in which many British Punjabis have strong connections to their ancestral village or in India or in Pakistan, but also in terms of how the genealogy records are recorded and maintained, well, or how many Punjabis visit the sacred cities in Haridwar in India, where uh, here many families go to lay the ashes of their deceased relatives in the river Ganges and record their family names in the genealogy scrolls. So these scrolls are looked after by the local priests called pandits who are responsible for keeping the records. And each family name is identified and recorded according to the family's ancestral village. And then another element has been looking at genealogy websites. So I've been examining how different institutions like the British Library and the National Archives work with family history websites to digitize collections such as Family Search and Find My Past where thousands of records have been digitized, including materials from the India office collections. However, these digital sources are chiefly aimed at Western users, I argue, as part of Western practices of doing family history, though often have limited relevance or have much to offer to descendants of migrant communities. 
And there's many reasons for this, as they um, claim that there's not a substantial market from those communities, but also culturally, these communities in the past would not use these types of sources. And this is the case for many South Asian communities. But as this research highlighted, these ways of seeking to do family history is now also changing with each generation. So for this research, to examine some of these experiences, I work with three community groups. Uh, main, I mainly first, second and third generation Punjabis, and they took part in a series of participatory workshops at community centers and at the Royal Geographical Societies and carried out individual and family oral history interviews. And where this research has focused on geography and place, how participants often thought of their place of origin was in different ways, particularly using different types of archives and objects and sources, which highlighted how ancestral place was often associated with multiple places which they had formed attachments and the mobilities of those journeys that their ancestors had made, whether it was the birthplace of their parents or their grandparents or where many generations of their family had lived. And there was also the impact of major historical events like partition in 1947, or those who were expelled from Uganda in 1972, and how the trauma of these types of events featured in people's family history, but also the wider collective memory of the Punjabi diaspora. So in terms of the Punjabi diaspora, the experience of frequent migrations has been highlighted in, in many studies, and has also been important for many people from the Punjab, particularly following the annexation of the Punjab by the British in 1849, which led to many years of colonial projects and the redevelopment of large-scale irrigation projects or building new railway networks and cultivating land in remote areas. So these colonial projects led to the constant demand for labor and frequent mig migrations and large-scale population movements and resettling in new places, including East, Af East Africa. And for some, this led to opportunities for land ownership or working on land. So this history of population movements has led to the Punjabis being a mobile group of people and having this strong association with land. However, with India's independence in 1947 and um, the exit of the British and partition, this led to mass forced migration on a completely different scale with over 15 million people displaced and over 1 million killed. And these patterns then of migration from India and Pakistan and East Africa to Britain and places like Canada and United States has therefore continued this long history of migration and resettlement and establishing some, themselves in new areas. So many of these features were discussed in the workshops as we examined various maps and sources that also feature the Punjab in different periods. And just to talk a little bit about the RGS and their collections, so the society holds hundreds of maps and images of books about the history and geography of Punjab. And these include many different travel accounts of individuals who are British officers or administrators and some of the Indians who served the British and their accounts, which provide an insight into the people they encountered and the places they visited, contributing to this information gathering, which was part of the colonial administration. So we examined a number of maps um, to explore these histories. One of the key items in the collections were the Gazetteers of India. The, the Society holds nine volumes of the Imperial Gazetteer by India by Sir William Wilson Hunter, which was first published in 1881. And there's been various revisions since, re including recent ones from 1915-53, which were the ones we looked at mainly. And these Gazetteers were produced by British administrators who work with local people, but they contain a wide range of knowledge which was collected for the purpose of compiling the information 
on each district and province in India. And these gazetteers were really quite important because they provided a unique way for many participants to find the names of their ancestral villages or point out key places relating to their family heritage. For many, this was the first time they had ever seen their family village on a map where most general maps do not provide that level of detail or information and very rarely include very small villages because they're so remote and rural. Uh, and even though spellings had changed and pronunciations, so it still presented many challenges, but when people actually were able to find the place of their ancestors on these maps was really quite a very emotional moment for many and generated a whole series of memories and questions and responses about their ancestors. Some were able to follow the journeys of their parents and grandparents, which led to conversations about where their ancestors lived and worked or their childhoods. And for many, they were able to, to use the maps to revisit the places either they or their parents had lived before partition. So in one example, Temina, she used the gazetteers to trace the place where she was born in Rurki. And in finding on the map, became quite emotional, actually quite tearful, identifying many places to do with her childhood where she and her brothers were educated. And it also opened up memories about her father who had died when she was very young. And she talked about the events that led up to partition where she and her family then had their lives completely changed again and were eventually forced to leave and migrate to Karachi in Pakistan. So along with the gazetteers, they also looked at maps of India before and after 1947, including the boundary maps that were produced by Cyril Radcliffe showing how the lines divided India and created the two new states of India and Pakistan. One map also illustrated the distribution of Sikhs and Hindus and Muslims, which was used as part of making those decisions. And even though, as many participants pointed out, you know, most of these areas were very mixed areas and people lived very close within those religious communities. So it raised many questions of how um, these maps were produced, but also how their ancestors had lived and how decisions were made that impacted their ancestors' lives. And being able to read the correspondence and look at some of these archival sources, for many prompted discussions on the subject of partition. And again, this was a sub subject that was hardly discussed in many families. So for many first and second generations, it was a subject that aroused many mixed feelings of anger and sadness, mistrust. Uh, and because it wasn't often openly discussed, and you know, many had lost family members, and the kind of trauma of talking about that. Many people had been displaced by partition or family members had been caught up in the violence or many had lost relatives at the time. So for older generations, it was a subject that was still quite painful and traumatic, as you can imagine. But then for the younger generations, there was also this piecing together of their family history and a sense of urgency to find out more about these gaps in their own knowledge because they'd often not had the chance to speak about these um, events with their parents or grandparents. So we also um, examined some photographs along with the maps and people identified certain cities and places that were linked to these family memories. For some, these were the sites of the violence and suffering, particularly those who lived in the two main cities close to the boundaries in Amritsar and Lahore, and also Delhi where many families had ended up in the refugee camps. So participants shared some harrowing memories that they had inherited as, their, as they kind of um, reflected on their personal stories. One example, Jaginda shared a really shocking story of how her mother's families who had all been Sikhs were sadly all murdered, except somehow her mother who was a child at the time survived and was rescued by a Muslim family who raised her mother as their own child. 
So for Joginda, using these maps and these photographs was not only a way to trace where her mother would have traveled from and to, but to talk about some of the sadness that she realized that her mother must have endured and what she must have suffered at the time. And there were many stories like this one. Um, and for many, this uncovering of trauma in their family history as they explored these archives. So whilst much of this research has explored the everyday practices around doing family history, which I haven't gone into so much detail, but it's also highlighted the ways in which these types of colonial archives can enable families to identify and express their family stories, which are not always openly discussed. And also, you know, another aspect is the importance of having these conversations in these archival spaces, where for places where archives like these are held, there's often the absence of the human experience and the personal narratives of the people affected by these historical events. So there is a potential for how powerful these types of sources are and how they can be used to empower communities to not only use these space, but to also engage with their family histories in different ways. Next in this conversation, we'll hear from Yasmin Khan, who reflects here on the way that migrant family histories and what she calls global families can challenge and reshape both national histories and a sense of global citizenship in complicated ways, and can perhaps be used to move past the binaries of both nationalism and cosmopolitanism in the way we understand families, ourselves, and our polities. I'm going to think a little bit about nationalism and how allegiances, family allegiances to the nation state can be either reinforced by or perhaps um, changed by migration histories. And thinking back to 2016, it feels like a very long time ago now, um, to Theresa May's statement, if you believe you're a citizen of the world, uh, you're a citizen of nowhere. You don't understand what the very word citizenship means. And she said that in her speech when she was prime minister to the Conservative Party conference. But as many people pointed out at the time, their own contemporary marriages, relationships and ancestors and family histories make them citizens of the world. <laughs> that family history itself can be a way of perhaps providing countervailing charge to, to nationalism. And if you look at the passenger lists, which show shipping records of embarkation, arrival, birth certificates in many family trees, the idea of a neat fit between birth, citizenship and the nation is not so easily maintained. But it's also perhaps a bit more complicated than this. And that's what I want to sort of get, get into a little bit today, thinking a little bit about some examples from my own family history, thinking about nationalism and how we might understand it, because nationalism is a, is a historical phenomenon. But it's also very deeply felt, very personal, very psychological. And some argue that this is really kind of imagined form of kinship, Benedict Anderson's famous words, imagined communities, that actually people are sort of pushed together because they share the same print media, they share the same language, um, and they share the same understanding of history, but it's a, it's a constructed form of kinship. And others um, emphasise something which is sometimes given this word primordial, but that there's, there's a deeper form of understanding, tapping into deeper forms of oneself, almost psychological, but also thinking about things like food and literature and music. So what happens when families globalize and have links and national ties to more than one place? What happens when ethnicity, the nation state and national allegiance no longer so neatly line up? And I think various things happen and I, I will turn to some examples in a moment, but 
global families can be seen as suspect. And there's always the risk of the, the fifth column. <laughs> there's always the risk of the, the individual who, who um, is not really truly of the place that they say they come from. In Jean Le Carré, there's quite often a, a mixed race character <laughs> who um, either hero or criminal is, is somehow not quite of the nation, not quite of the state. So in the mission song, Bruno Salvador, uh, known to friend and foe alike as Salvo, is an impetuous linguistic genius of mixed race, born of a Congolese headman's daughter and an erring Irish Catholic missionary, and now assimilated into the British way of life. So you get that kind of thing. So you get this idea of the fifth, the fifth column. But also, there are other things at work, I think. There's also the multiple affiliations, the risk of miscegenation, which I've, I've referred to, and the idea of, of, of somehow going native, of breaking the link to the original homeland. And so, um, I, you know, I think my, my whole career, in a way, has been spent trying to work out Britishness and my own family's relationship to Britishness, and then actually mapping that into broader narrative histories um, concerning South Asia. But I wanted to talk a little bit about my, my grandfather today. On one side, I'm Pakistani, but on the other side, I have an Anglo-Argentinian grandfather who was born in Buenos Aires in the early 1920s. And he was called Godfrey Cordery. His father, Kenneth Cordery, had actually migrated to Argentina towards the end of the First World War and had been working on Great Western railways in the south of England and had gone to work like many, many others on the vast Argentinian railway network, which was funded by a lot of um, European capital, including British capital, but also employed a lot of British railway workers. And so Godfrey grew up in Argentina and Buenos Aires. He spoke Spanish. He had Spanish friends. He ate Italian and Spanish food. But he also went to an English boy's school where it was very much impressed upon him that he was still British because Argentina was not a formal part of the British Empire but was involved in an informal network of of empire where British goods and trade and capital were closely linked to the to the state of Argentina and so when the uh, second world war broke out Godfrey volunteered he wasn't conscripted because he wasn't part of the the part of the world where, where there would have been conscription to the British army but he he volunteered as part of an Anglo-Argentine volunteer force and sailed to Britain um, and joined the, the army and was then sent on to India and was in the Indian army. So there was a, a link to the other side of my, my family in, in that respect. And I guess the, the things which kind of occur to me from his particular story are those, those links between nation and, and nationalism, because in 1982, when the Falklands War broke out, Godfrey, who was by that time living back in Britain, was very conflicted and felt very strong, sort of very torn between allegiance to Britain in that war and to the, the, the Argentine case and, and sort of wore a pin which had the Argentine and the, and the British flags entwined on it um, and was really kind of also personally and emotionally troubled by that by that conflict, I think, which challenged his own ideas of, of kinship and belonging, but also relate to a wider idea of Englishness, which I think was also very much present in his view. And I think which has been underscored by writers in particular, like Bill Schwartz around the idea of a white man's world, which, um, which Godfrey was born into and many others 
in the early 20th century, which emphasized parts of a British imperial network as spaces where they could um, where they could expect to live well and expect to be secure. And what I see through his career, my grandfather's career, is a retraction of that world and a shrinking of that world as he tried to settle after the Second World War, first in South Africa and then in Canada, where he was trying to actually sort of find a base within the British colonial settler world where he could stay. But at every turn seemed to find it very difficult and ultimately ended up back in back in Britain, but but in much less sort of, well, certainly more impoverished situation than he had been, say, as a child growing up in, in Buenos Aires. So um, I think these kinds of stories, it, it may seem a far, a far jump to this, to, to this story, but this is, um, is a very famous painting of, of William Palmer with his wife, the, the mogul, the mogul princess by Johann Zoffany, which was painted in 1785 and hangs in the British Library, which shows a family with different heritage and, and where a mixed marriage had taken place, which would have become absolutely unthinkable by the early 19th century when heirs, Anglo-Indians who were heirs to Indian mothers would have been disinherited and where there was much stricter policing, say, of the Victorian sort of colour line in the 19th century empire. And I think both of these kinds of stories link to this idea of the, the growth of nationalism in the 19th century, but also its, its increasing kind of sense of exclusionary lines and the cre creation of nation states, which tended to want people to belong to, to one country or the other. In the Indian Empire, British families assiduously curated what they called their Englishness, and often moving abroad was a way of actually consolidating class status or wealth. And part of what this meant was maintaining a colour line, certainly in the 19th century, maintaining the victor kinship of white British purity, in Bill Schwartz's words, making the white man's world. But I think thinking about family history does help us expose some of the more fallacious and suspicious elements of nationalism. And thinking back to Theresa May, clearly belonging in the world is more complex than just being a citizen of the world or a citizen of one country and has involved historical processes and also individual families had to negotiate and find a place in this. But I think also you know, many of us might have found Theresa May's statement very challenging but I think we shouldn't also resort to simplistic cosmopolitanism either necessarily or just all claim to be citizens of the world because when I look back in my own family's history there's plenty of quite challenging histories of national allegiance or um, imperial allegiance on, 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 on many sides despite the fact that actually it's a very global history and there's a lot of intermarriage and, and people from across the world and my grandfather actually very happily accepted the marriage of his daughter to Pakistani. So I think we have to recognise both the difficulties of nationalism but also perhaps simplistic cosmopolitanism and not necessarily just celebrate our global ancestors by claiming to be citizens of the world either. Many of our family histories point to moments of fierce national allegiance as well as contestation, challenge and, and transcendence of those boundaries and of sort of multiple identities that run together. I came to the question of family history as a settler colonial Canadian amid a present-day context in my home country where many folks are grappling with the legacies of empire, cultural genocide, and racism. Here, 
I reflect on critical family history and how this may help us approach the question of settler colonialism in meaningful ways. So I'm really interested in, in, in family history within the context of settler colonialism, not least because that is my own family's history. And settler colonials, like myself, often have a very odd relationship with family history in that family history has been and continues to be for many settler colonial people, part of a wider urge to connect to Britain, to reassert this uh, a, a white imperial identity. Um, and so, you know, as Yasmin, as Yasmin articulated extremely well, part of these, these projects of empire building and nation building. And, and for that reason, I'm deeply uncomfortable with the way that, that family history operates within the settler colonial world. But of course, these family histories are also part of a, a much, a, a sort of much more individual personal desire to tell stories about migrant ancestors, to find stories of, of belonging and family, um, and, and then sometimes to, to uncover stories of coerced migration, in particular in the case of, of, of convict ancestors, for example, or indentured ancestors. Though that has well, in, in more recent times, been turned again into, into narratives of, of kind of white belonging. So if you're in, interested in, in that um, debate, you, you might want to look up the debates about Irish slavery and how that's used as part of a project of, of white supremacy. And so I, I can't, I don't have time to get into it there, but that's what I mean by how even in cases of coerced migration within the white empire, quote unquote, those cases can still be part of these white nation building projects. In the case of the United States, which is a context I don't know as well, and within Canada and, and Australia, we have a lot of cases where people are, or settler colonial people are using family history to claim indigenous identity, even if their links to indigenous identity are very, very slim indeed. All of these kinds of drives, both benign and personal and national and, and not as nowhere near as benign, have all resulted in a massive investment in settler colonial of, of settler colonial nations in family history resources. And this kind of relates to what Chandan is picking up on in terms of you know, how there's this understanding, like these, these resources are created for Western and largely white family history researchers. And part of that is because of the drive of settler colonial white families to, to find their family history to connect back to Britain. Um, of course, it's also linked to the Mormons and how that's a major source for family history records within the United States. But this is changing. Um, people are starting to look for and grapple with and often accidentally find, and in, in, in my opinion, I think actually this accidentally finding difficult stories is one of the most powerful and interesting things about, about doing family histories. You may not have started trying to find difficult stories or challenging narratives, but you often stumble upon them. And those include stories about how your own family has been complicit in projects of settler colonialism, for example. And so I think people are really starting to think critically about what family history um, is doing. On the one hand, in terms of the work that it does to reassert older racial and imperial hierarchies, to re-naturalize narratives of settler belonging. And there's a lot of scholars who are starting to work on this. Um, in, it, Christine Sleater is, is, is the person who, who coined the phrase critical family history in her call for more more family history that, that, that looks at these sorts of things. And actually, I think this is really starting to explode in, in, in terms of scholarship. The Genealogy Journal has a special call out for critical settler family history. And as New Zealand historian Richard Shaw puts it, um, writing about what he calls his great-grandfather's non-narration, and I love this idea of non-narration within family histories, 
Yeah, his grandfather's, uh, great-grandfather's, sorry, non-narration of his role in the military invasion of Maori land. He writes, family history shape the ways in which we make sense of and locate ourselves in the places we live. And those of us whose roots reach back to the destructive practices of colonization have a particular responsibility to ensure that such narratives do not conform to comfortable type. And I think that's a really interesting way to put it, to make sure narratives don't conform to comfortable type. And again, as Yasmin put it, you know, neither tidy narratives of national belonging nor happy narratives of international cosmopolitanism. Both of those are comfortable types. But I'm also interested in thinking about what family history can do in terms of break, helping people break out of these comfortable type narratives. And this is what I'm really interested in, how we might use the small, interconnected and fundamentally complex, tangly, messy family histories of settler families, as well as all other families to tell new stories about the past um, and about nation building in a way that still allows space for people to connect with their families to find that meaning because I think that there is still a very real need on an individual level and on a community level to find meaning in family histories, but also which gives people the tools to place this in a critical context and to grapple with some of the more difficult aspects of the history of settler colonialism in which settler colonial people are complicit and have been complicit. And this is particularly acute in the context of my home in Canada, as we continue to grapple with the stories of forced migration and forced family destruction that so terribly affected Canada's Indigenous peoples. I don't pretend to have any kind of recipe for this kind of potentially transformative family history, but I do see its immense potential, you know, not just in my imagination, um, but in the, the work that family historians, both professional and amateur, both academic and non-academic are doing. I, I see that work being done and, and I think there's a lot of potential there. As Bronwyn Davies writes uh, about her family history in New South Wales, there are not two sides here of wrongdoers and wronged, but a multiplicity of meanings and actions through which lives are made to make sense. Um, and I think family history is a way in which people make sense of, of lives. And it's a really powerful tool in that way. Nadine Atawell, who we'll hear next, approaches these questions from a different perspective. In her research on Chinese and Chinese mixed-race communities across British, the British colonial world, she explores the complex inheritances of migrant Chinese and mixed-race families who narrate their family stories within the context of racism, anxieties over race mixing, while also navigating their own paths in shaping their communities including by engaging in complex and unofficial forms of partnership, intimate labor, and alternative families. I explore Chinese practices of interracial intimacy and multiracial community under British colonial rule um, in port cities like Liverpool, London, and Hong Kong during the first half of the 20th century. So in other words, I'm interested in the very heterogeneous social worlds made possible by the itineraries of empire, global capital, and mobile Chinese and other racialized subjects as they intersected in British colonial port cities. And so I've been following the traces of Chinese and Chinese diasporic practices of conviviality across a diverse archive of texts, including social documentary photography, life writing and social scientific scholarship, state and other institutional records, and also family and community history. 
And so what I want to do today is talk about some of the challenges that I've been grappling with in trying to attend to the specificities of working class Chinese migrant life in Liverpool. As historians, if I can call myself that, as someone without training or an appointment in the discipline, how do we center or how can we center the knowledges that people often share in or through the form of family history without recentering the family form um, at the heart of our accounts of community history, for example? So just uh, some context to give you a sense of where we are. So in the 18th and early 19th centuries, as I think most people know, Liverpool was an important center of the circumatlantic trade in enslaved Africans and sugar uh, and cotton and so on. By the 1860s, however, Asia had also become, next to North America and Europe, the most important field of Liverpool's commerce. The activities of shipping companies like Blue Funnel brought sailors from Hong Kong and China, as well as the Indian subcontinent, the Caribbean, and Northern and Western Africa to Liverpool's working class and dockside neighborhoods. And here they entered into a variety of kinds of relationships with both locals and other migrants um, from Ireland, for example, or the continent, and also sometimes uh, fathered children. By the 1920s, enduring patterns of gendered migration and interracial intimacy had contributed to the formation of um, multi-generational, multi-racial Chinese uh, Liverpudlian and also Black Liverpudlian and, and other mixed communities. So I'm an outsider to this history in certain ways, but as a second generation Canadian scholar of Chinese and white British descent, I can, can also feel how this history has shaped my own experiences of moving through the world. And so in part, this book is an attempt to think through, or one of the things I'm trying to do in this book is, is think through the different dimensions and ramifications of this inheritance, including for non-descendant subjects like myself. Historians of empire have often focused on attempts to curtail or otherwise manage um, racial mixing, including discursively. Um, and my own first encounter with the history of Chinese Liverpool came via the textual traces of its pathologization. So during this period, Chinese and other migrants of color um, became the objects of a series of moral panics that generated copious textual and photographic materials. For intellectual as well as for ethical and political reasons, I knew that I didn't want to write a book just about such anxieties or the projects they helped fuel. Rather, I wanted to know how people of mixed Chinese descent in particular navigated colonial capitalist geographies of power and attachment, which meant centering them as subjects and not just objects of knowledge. And so in the absence of, at least for Liverpool, a robust autobiographical record, I've been working closely with oral histories um, including those excerpted in Maria Lin Wong's 1989 community history, Chinese Liverpudlians, with the aim of learning more about people's lived experience, and especially the sort of practices of everyday life through which they negotiated the rich social worlds in which they were embedded and to which they contributed. So family history plays an important role in the narratives Wong's interviewees tell both about their own pasts and about community life and development. I think this isn't surprising. Family history is important, plays an important part in, in, in our lives, or family life plays an important part in, in many, all of our lives. As second and third generation Liverpudlians of Chinese descent, of course, interviewees' sense of self and community will have been shaped, however complexly, by their upbringing in multiracial, diasporic, often multiply diasporic families. More than this, however, Wong's narrative and curatorial choices, as well as interviewees' own choices, work to equate, or at least explicitly work at times, to equate community formation with heteronormative family formation in ways that push back, again, sometimes 
Wang is quite explicit about this, against the pathologization of both interracial intimacy and Chinese sexual practices more generally. It's not surprising, again, I think, that community members should have sought to emphasize the conventionality, the respectability of Chinese Liverpudlian intimate and family life. Still, I think we have to ask, or I, I found myself wanting to ask, what's lost or obscured when we accept the claim um, that sexual life in working class Chinese Liverpool or intimate life only took place within or with an eye to marriage? And to be clear, I'm not interested in reactivating the apparatus of pathologization that community members have worked hard um, to dismantle over the years. But like other feminist and queer scholars of diaspora, I worry when our efforts to contest the pathologization of migrant bodies and intimate practices work to uphold normative conceptions of appropriate sexual behavior and gendered ways of being, whether Euro-American or Chinese in this case. As Nyan Shah argues in Stranger Intimacy, a book which um, has been really rich for me, so Shah argues that focusing on the nuclear family can end up occluding quote, the many permeable forms and structures of cohabitation that sustained migrant workers corporeally and affectively, and that, quote, exceed even our understanding of multi-generational, extended, and transnational households. So like Shah then, who uses police and court records to show how, how migratory work and transportation crossroads fostered experimental intimacies, alternative habits and codes of erotic sociability grounded in the material challenges of survival, I've returned to the archive of pathology in order to see what, if anything, we can learn about the economies of sex, desire, and intimacy that organized and flowed through Chinese Liverpool. Um, and in particular, I read the transcripts of oral evidence given before the Liverpool Chinese Commission in 1907. And this was a municipal commission of inquiry that set out to investigate Chinese settlements in Liverpool, which it framed, of course, as a problem. Week after week, city officials heard testimony about the alleged economic and sexual practices of Chinese men, including bigamy, sodomy, group sex, and so on from their white intimates, colleagues and neighbors, as well as journalists, policemen, churchmen, and public health officials. Among other witnesses who spoke before them, three young white women sex workers described their relationships with Chinese migrant men, whom they blamed for involving them in the commercial sex trade. The transcripts make for difficult reading in a, in a number of ways. So on the one hand, the three sex, three women um, who uh, sort of recount their involvement in the sex trade describe experiences of violation and exploitation that are appalling to contemplate. And interrogating their narratives is a, is a really fraught endeavor given the historical struggles of women and especially women who do sex work to speak and be heard. And they are heard at great length um, during this inquiry. On the other hand, the weaponization of sexual deviance, including sex work, as part of projects of anti-Asian and, the commission makes clear, also anti-Black panic, means that such allegations in the historical record cannot be taken at face value, and community members and historians have tended to dismiss or disavow them, or at least um, sort of decenter de them. So there's Wong's community history sort of emphasizes, right? There was no drinking, there were certainly no orgies, uh, no sex work, no violence, right? no intimate partner violence. But as we know from the scholarship on sex work in Britain during this period, as well as from the scholarship on interracial sexual intimacy in other parts of the empire, sex work did play a role, right? Or li very likely played a role in how such communities were formed and sustained themselves over time. 
In port cities like Liverpool, women might move in and out of different forms of sex work at different moments in their lives, when their partners, for example, were at sea or temporarily unemployed or disappeared, were deported. And they might choose to pursue relationships outside of the bonds of marriage for, for pleasure, affection, as well as out of necessity right, or desire. In testifying before the commission, the white wives of Chinese migrant men worked hard to exclude promiscuous or slatternly women from their social worlds. So among other things, um, the Liverpool Chinese Commission makes visible, I think, a moment in the history of the pressure to perform respectability, right? We see certain kinds of narratives getting formulated for public consumption in this moment. And yet these partners all seem to know the women whom they're sort of um, you know, pushing aside right, and decentering from their accounts. One woman whose blackness is instructively underscored is said to have worked as, as a nurse and midwife in the community before being shunned as a procuress or shunned at least during the inquiry. It feels important to think about sex work and sex workers as part of community life rather than as threats to it among the wayward and queer resources, to quote Sadia Hartman, that migrants and their intimates mustered up for survival. And I think doing so forces us to think differently about intimacy um, as well as a form of labor with the potential to intervene in the material conditions of life, including the racial and gender regimes that structured access to power and other social goods in early 20th century Britain. But can we do this while still honoring the stories and knowledges that community members seem to have wanted to share publicly in which sex work and other non-normative practices do not usually figure very centrally or, or don't get not acknowledged at all? I think that we can, um, or at least I'm committed to trying. It's true that nuclear family formation figures centrally in the accounts of community offered by commission witnesses like Fanny Shack and community historians like Maria Lin Wong. Revisiting Chinese Liverpudlians, though, with this evidence in mind, um, I've been struck by the extent to which interviewees also prompt us to look beyond the family as a site or an engine of social reproduction and community development. Insofar as they repeatedly draw attention in their accounts of sort of daily life to the work involved in sustaining families as such, which folded uh, mixed race and other children into broader networks of interest, care, and interde interdependency of Chinese uncles and Irish aunties, not all of whom will have been related, right, genetically related to them. In the words of Ellen Ross, quote, families were not bounded units, but merely powerful terms in people's strategies for survival. Even if it's true that some makeshifts, you know, migration, pawning, begging, odd jobbing, renting out rooms, were always more easily integrated into narratives of resourcefulness than others. Still, it's possible from these accounts to imagine how sex work might have been taken up as part of broader cultures of work and intimacy. I don't know that I've got the balance quite right, but I sort of have been looking for ways to think with, not against, the knowledges that emerge through the telling of family history, even as they sometimes also work to undo the, the, the form um, that in some ways supports, supports that history. So far, we've heard stories of moving and migration and how this shapes family history and family memory, as well as our understandings of history on a global scale. Next, we'll think about the stories themselves, how and why they move us, and how they may help us rethink the way we tell our small histories alongside big ones. Next, Natalie Pithers reflects on the power of stories, both of staying put and leaving, and how they move us, and move us on from the expected to the unexpected. 
and the power of family history to bring these stories to life. I wanted to start today by examining why we tell stories. So I think we can all agree that we've been telling stories to each other probably since we learned to speak. It's part of being human. And I think that's because we relate to each other via stories. We use stories to share our thoughts and feelings, but we also use stories to examine these feelings, negative and positive. I think stories can be used as a mirror to show us our own hidden prejudices. But ultimately, we keep coming back to the fact that we relate to each other in lots of different ways through stories. So if I was to quote a statistic or a fact at somebody, they would be less likely to understand how I feel. If I was to say I feel depressed because statistically X percentage of people in my circumstances feel depressed, that's unlikely to bring me the same connection or the same response as if if I was to say I feel depressed because um, my children are driving me nuts, for example. So just as we need to hear stories about each other to connect with each other today, I think we need to hear stories about the past to help us connect to the past and to relate to the past and to examine it. So the stories about the past that we find might actually never contain our own ancestors' voices. And I think we have to be careful of creating stories about our ancestors in which we are simply guessing at their thoughts and feelings and um, because these are after all real people but what we can do is explore our ancestors stories within the historical context of their time and place and I think by doing so we can make educated views on what their experiences were like and how they might have felt about them and I think by doing that we start to be able to connect with them on a far greater level. So once upon a time, there was a girl named Jane. She was 16 and she worked in an unskilled manual job and she found herself unmarried and pregnant. And the father of that baby was her employer. So I wanted you to think about how how you feel about that Jane based on knowing nothing about her particular individual circumstances in terms of the time and place in which she was lived in, lived in. And then think about how your feelings or thoughts on her grow and change when you examine her in various different contexts. So how does Jane's story change if she was born in the year 2000 or the year 1600 or in 1780 or in 1825? What about if she was born in Ireland? What about if she was living in London? Or what about if she was on a farm in rural Wales? How does that time and place within which Jane lived influence her story? Because I, I really strongly think it does influence her story. I think medieval Jane is not the same Jane as Jane born into year 2000. She wasn't subject to the same attitudes and experiences. She had different rights for a start. So how does that different time and place influence how we feel about Jane? And what assumptions do we make about her when we hear her story and how does that change when we have context so for example i think ways in which people may have thought about jane depending upon where she lived and what time she lived in have, will have changed from disadvantaged to foolish or for maybe she was vulnerable or perhaps she's a benefit scrounge perhaps she's immoral or an innocent led astray perhaps she's abused or she's manipulative or manipulated and Perhaps she gets our sympathy or our scorn, depending upon the time and place she lived in. So the real Jane was my Jane. And my Jane is my four times great grandmother. 
1841, she was working as a domestic servant for a wealthy reverend who was actually the son of a baron in rural Oxfordshire. She actually had two illegitimate children, one of which I'm descended from, um, which I am certain is the product of this reverend, the son of this reverend. Uh, the other one's parentage is more elusive, although I suspect they have the same father. Both children were brought up by Jane's parents, who in 1851 were described in the census as paupers. Jane herself completely disappears from all records. I can't find her and I will never find her voice. I doubt she could write, let alone leave a diary. So my Jane becomes a drop in an ocean of various different versions of Janes. She's one of many, many Janes. And she's one in a long history of disadvantaged and vulnerable women. She's one in an ocean of Janes that lived in 1841 and for which we have no recorded voice. And she's one in an ocean of women having, women having children out of wedlock. My Jane can act as a conduit to explore all sorts of different elements of history, though. How many grandparents raised illegitimate children? How did this vary from countryside to city? How many domestic servants had illegitimate children? And how many were fathered by their employers? What does that tell us about women and their lives? And how were these women viewed at the time? How did attitudes about Jane change over time and why? Similarly, by looking closely at Jane's story in her particular context, I can start to connect with her as my ancestor and examine how she may have thought and felt about her circumstances. By doing this, Jane becomes no longer a drop in an ocean of Janes. Um, she is no longer a statistic. She is my Jane in her very, very particular time and place. Interestingly, though, my view of the story is that Jane was extremely vulnerable and was most likely taken advantage of and found herself in a really precarious position, a position you would not want to be in in 1841. But my view on the story is not actually the same as some of my cousins, some of the cousins that I found via DNA matching. Their view on Jane's story is that it's a romance. The story between her and her employer is a romantic one. It was a, it was a love affair. He may have been married, but he fell in love with this maid and together they had two children. Now, I can't say to them categorically that they are wrong because neither of us have, have, have Jane's voice. But I can give evidence about the history surrounding Jane and let others draw their own conclusions about which scenario they think is more likely. And doing this poses interesting questions. What percentage of my story is about my Jane? And what does based on facts mean when facts aren't actually giving evidence? For example, the census shows that Jane was living with her employer. And I have other bits of evidence that suggest that he is the father of her baby, but I, I can't categorically conclude it. I have one document in which he is named as, her, as the baby's father, but they were never married and they don't live together in the future. I have drawn to a certain degree my own conclusions about their relationship based on some scant facts and some evidence that I have. So my Jane is a particularly emotive ancestral story, I think. But I think this approach of putting people into context applies just as much to all our ancestors. So let's take our agricultural labourers who lived in the same village all their life and perhaps didn't seem to kind of wrongly get labelled as boring in that they were less eventful. They don't seem to have big tragedies in their lives. There was no murderers, there was no criminals, there were no heroes. There's not an obvious story. But by applying this technique, 
we can still examine their lives and find their stories because the agricultural labourers of the 1780s did not lead the same lives as agricultural labourers live today. And I think that by drawing on the time and the place within which even the lowliest of agricultural labourers who lived in the same place all their life, we can still connect with them and still find their stories. So the digitisation of newspapers in particular have presented us with a unique opportunity to add social historical context to our ancestors. By examining local articles, we can learn about the community within which our ancestors lived. We can discover everything from what they were gossiping about in the local pub to when they gained electric street lighting. We can find out the rental value of their homes in their area. We can look at tithe maps and see um, where in the landscape those homes were. Zooming out, we can also look at national events, the Industrial Revolution, and the impact that that would have upon our ancestors. So I also think that the increase in collaborative projects we've seen between genealogists and other historians really provides an opportunity for us to look at context of time and place. So public open source data such as that from the Railway Working Lives and Deaths project can be applied to our own ancestors and help us to explore their stories. The final thought that I wanted to leave you with just quickly is a quote from my favourite author, who is Margaret Atwood. And Margaret Atwood said that in the end, we'll all become stories. And I think that's true when people have died and passed away. Again, we don't talk about them statistically. We talk about what they did and how we felt about them and the time that they made us laugh. We tell their stories. And I think that if in the end we all become stories, then don't we have a responsibility to go and discover and find and share our ancestors' stories? To close off this discussion, we invited Alison Light to reflect on the whole Family History Workshop and the relationship between family history and academic history and our collective project to make sense of what she calls the vast, unbearable past. Family history dissolves the binary, really, between public and private, and that being kind of central intellectual and emotional problem and question, moving across that very difficult territory, which we can't name, really. It's neither public nor private. And I think trying to think of ways of talking about that is incredibly difficult and very, very creative. There's also that element that family and history appear to pull in different directions. I'm, I'm not a historian. I was never trained as a historian. I did family history, you know, like everybody else, except that I went to a lot of record offices in the days when you had to do that. And of course, it was also very wonderful. And there's a long conversation about what might have been lost by not being able to use local record offices in quite the same way. But the thing I want to get at really is that we need, we often find we need different languages or different ways of conceptualizing. Family seems intimate, emotional, psychological, often about the individual. And we need what Hazel Carby called a vocabulary of the interior life. I'm throwing these phrases out in case they're useful. So we turn to memory studies, psychoanalytic understandings of a personal life history, life writing in all its forms, oral history, all of them giving due weight to what we've been calling emotional legacies, the kind of inheritance which may be of secrets, lies, deceptions, shame, guilt, 
that sort of inheritance, which is every bit as powerful as inheriting money or property or. So that's one kind of area. And then the other area which we've sort of kept moving around is something we call history with a capital H, which dislodges or decenters family. It does it by historicizing it, by putting it in a place at, and a time and a culture and saying, look, it looks like this here. Um, it's not your family, this is what it looked like. It does it by introducing people outside blood relations. And there've been a number of comments on the need to start experimenting with words other than family. Kith and kin was one phrase, things from anthropology, kinship networks, and so on. So it's also a way of saying that for history, family is an issue, not a given. History is personal, as people have said. Family historians in particular make their own histories from their families, as I did by interviewing members and so on. But I think, you know, at the one end of the spectrum was the question of the I, that sort of I in history. And at the other, the fact that all history is public in some way, once it's gone beyond, you know, once it's been published, if only in the form of a pamphlet for other members of your family, as soon as it becomes more than a family tree, it becomes a kind of argument, I would say. And I think it's public because whatever you write as a family historian becomes an argument about, for instance, social policies that have affected the people you're dealing with, questions, say, of poverty, of economic migration. These have a bearing on policy today, on politics today. You know, why are the poor always poor? Is it not because of their individual position, their lack of responsibility, for instance? So I think it might be useful, and it won't take us very far, to have a distinction between the past, which is a vast, I think it was a great soup, you know, a great melange of everything lost, everything gone, everything missing, it's unbearable. That's the past and something we call history, which is what we make of that. The arguments, the constructions, the stories, but also what version of the past we're offering. And I think what we've seen over and again is, is how much family history can change the big narratives. So I, I'm sort of being devil's advocate in the sense that I think history from above, as we like to call it, has a place to play here. And I think encouraging family historians, as I was encouraged, to look at records beyond the genealogical, to not be frightened of them. Things like government reports, local government reports on health, sanitation reports. I spent a long time looking at one area in Portsmouth, which had been cleared a slum and discovering that nobody had cleaned the streets. It just wasn't worth it, they said. So the kind of contracting out of cleaning helped create the slum. And also because you find voices in those records saying what you want to say, objecting at the time. You're not imposing that on the past. I think allowing the point of view of the people of the past as both an issue and something absolutely crucial because it, the past through history needs to become unfamiliar. I think it interests me, I'm jumping ahead to a provocation I had at the end, which is why are so many of us stuck in the 19th century? Clearly it's to do with resources and money, but I think also 
the further back you go, the more unfamiliar it becomes. And that's a very good thing. But even more, you know, even once you get beyond living memory, I do remember asking my mother when we discovered a, uh, my father's mother was buried in a pauper's grave with several other people and no markings and expecting her to be devastated. Instead of which she said, oh, at least the municipal people buried her. So it completely turned upside down and relativized my idea of what poverty was. I think how we write has been a recurring question. Again, Hazel Carby mentioned the problem of the atrociously wounded, as it were, in history, and how one of the problems is that that can become spectacularly interesting to the reader, to your audience. How not to make it melodramatic, how to make it, she said, ordinary. And I think the way to do that is, again, to look at the structures in which the person was implicated, the world in which they were living, where policies were made, like the workhouse, for instance, which was part of a contracting out system, um, which made profit. So looking for the bigger patterns in the carpet, I suppose, I suppose to the concept of cultural memory might be worth bringing in. Cultural memory is things that are passed on by groups rather than individuals. And they can be things from songs to quilts, you know, which carry on history and which individuals, of course, remember and know, and which, like material objects, tell you as much, as it were, about that person's family history, their past. When I interviewed an auntie who's now long gone, I watched her put water into the bottle of milk to wash out the last bit of milk into her cup. And I realize I do that too. And you know, that to me says as much about the history of that family as any amount of records or behavior practices. I think the variety of literary forms has been mentioned by a lot of people, the ways in which we can give breathing space and signal differently and ethically the difference between, as it were, the, the facts we're using and the fictionalizing we're attempting, italics, breaks on the page, the use of asterisks, the use of different narrative voices. All of those things, I think, have, you know, are incredibly helpful to think about the writing. I suppose the other thing is that, you know, you can look at what you can look at family history as a phenomenon in a long history of family, you know, of ancestor worship. We're the latest group of humans to do this in our own peculiar way. And there are arguments about family history, about it as big business, about it as an effect of the internet, which clearly is part of a globalizing culture, which itself has made possible huge understandings of migration. But I think some of the sensitivities and worries that people have had about their writing and their work are not only to do with family history, they're also to do with being rootless, with being educated out of your family, with being an internal exile. And I, I wanted to just sort of say that because I think that's a different kind of sensitivity. I'm also struck by how feminized family history still is. Age difference has obviously changed. It used to be just gray heads when you went in the record office. Now with younger people doing it as part of a degree, it's a different relation to family and to your own family. You know, you might still feel unable to tell your mother she's wrong. I mean, there are all kinds of things that blow up in family history to do with your own age group. 
Finally, I suppose, I, I don't know if any of you saw an interview with David Olagusu in The Guardian recently. It was about the Colston statue and Black Lives Matter. And he said very strongly, as a historian, I don't expect people to like me. And I was very struck by that because it's such a professional view. And I wonder how many of us want to be liked. I mean, I know I do, and that seems to be bound up in a sort of rather culturally feminine view. So I throw that out as a provocation too. You know, we don't have to be liked. History is an argument. The internet also is very consensual. It makes it hard to have an argument. So, you know, it's, I, it's nothing profound I'm going to say except that, well, it's not profound, it's rather obvious, particularly coming from an old Marxist. I think you just have to keep on looking at the contradictions, really. These contradictions, Alison Light reminds us, are where the new is born. And it does seem like we are at an important moment in family history vis-a-vis academic history. It's my hope that through conversations like this one, we can find new ways to tell stories about our complex and moving past. Thank you for listening. Many thanks to Julia Light and to all the contributors to this discussion. You can read more about the workshops and the speakers on the episode page for this podcast. Please visit our website, historyworkshop.org.uk. You can find us on Twitter at HistoryWO and on Facebook and Instagram as History Workshop. This is the History Workshop podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. Thanks for listening. <laughs>